Revelation chapter 18, where we pick up from where we left off last Lord's Day in our continued study of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another angel from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeteers will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all who have been slain on earth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to your word once again, we 
bow the knee of our hearts to you, to your authority, to your sovereign providence, Father. And we pray that you, the author of the book of Revelation, would open our eyes and ears to understand, Father, your message, your intention in this passage in our lives. Father, surrender our hearts. Give us a heart that is earnest and eager, Father, to hear your voice and to do your bidding, to respond and grant us grace to do what even as we hear, we won't in our own ability have the strength to do. Show us Christ. Conform us to his likeness. And send your spirit, Father, to, to, to drive us to him this day. Give us the grace to flee Babylon while there's still time, before it's too late. Help us to see the realities of Babylon in our own souls that we might repent and return to our King. Father, do what only you intend to do and what only you can do in this message and this powerful book. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, we continue this morning through our study of the book of Revelation, which again, according to chapter 1, verse 1, the book of Revelation was a gift from God the Father to God the Son. Kind of a reward, if you will, for the sufferings of Jesus Christ. It was a gift from the Father to His Son for the good of His church. It was written to those seven churches, but again, the symbolism of the seven churches, the symbolism of the book of Revelation is that, again, seven being symbolic of perfection, of fulfillment. Those seven churches are representative of every church in every age in the last days, last days being the biblical last days, not the way we often think of Revelation in the last days, some future far out time we don't know when, but in the Bible, Jesus talks about the last days, the time of his departure until he returns. So this wonderful gift from the Father to the Son for the good of every church until Christ returns has been given to us that we might know, chapter 1, verse 4 says, grace and peace. Grace and peace. As we, the church of Jesus Christ, live our lives in a world that is in rebellion to Christ, that keeps Christ at arm's length, that hates Him, that hates everything associated with Him, we need daily, moment by moment, the grace and peace that chapter 1 promises is offered from this revelation of Jesus Christ, this revelation about Jesus Christ. In this book is everything the church of Jesus Christ in every age needs to persevere and to cling to Christ without compromise against the temptation of the days. We've seen throughout the book of Revelation that compromise is the great work of Satan. In the time between Christ's ascension and his return, all throughout the book, we've been introduced to Satan. In chapter 12, he's the great red dragon. And his allies, the beasts from the land, the beasts from the sea. And how this unholy trinity, if you will, just mimicking, mocking the holy trinity, how this unholy trinity is doing everything in his power to turn hearts away from Christ. Through compromise. And if you go back and look at those seven letters, weaved all throughout those seven letters, even when Jesus acknowledges there's good things going on in these churches, but this I have against you. Here's what I expose. There's compromise. There's false teaching that's come in. There's a false understanding of the gospel that's come in. There's worldliness that's entered in. There's compromise that has made its way into the church. And Satan does this by luring professing Christians away from Christ by tempting our souls with treasure, with pleasures, with things that we think will fulfill us, things that we think we need, things that will make us whole in a way that maybe we don't see that Christ does. Well, we've entered into now with chapter 17, 18, and 19, We've made it through the seal judgment. We've made it through the trumpet judgments. We've made it through the bowl judgments, which again, all looking at the same thing. We're not dealing with those things chronologically. We're looking at them, they are just cycles rotating around, looking at God's judgment against a world that is in rebellion to him. Each cycle is focusing upon just some different aspect of Christ. Again, for, for those of you who, who may be fresh with us this morning, it's kind of like when you go to a football game. 
and, and you see cameras all over the stadium. They're looking at the same game, but each camera is focused on something else. It's giving you a, one's on the quarterback, one's on the running back, one's looking at the coach, one's giving an overhead panorama, one camera's looking at the crowds. It's all the same game, but each cycle around is focusing upon some different aspect of God's judgment, of Christ's judgment upon a world that's in rebellion of him. And that's what the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are, but with greater intensity. As you move from seal to trumpet, there's a, there's a heightening of intensity. And when you go from trumpet to bowl, as we said, trumpets are for what? They're for warning. A bowl, once it's poured out, it's over. You can't put toothpaste back in the tube. And so we're, it's, it's the same thing, but a warning of the king's judgment upon the world. We left off in chapter 16 with the sixth and seventh bold judgment, which again is pushing final judgment. Just like the sixth and seventh seal judgment was final judgment, the sixth and seventh trumpet judgment was final judgment. Same thing here. And now in chapter 17, 18, and 19, we've got to have the structure in our mind. John is not now skipping to, here's something totally different. As he turns his attention to Babylon, he's focusing upon that sixth and seventh bold judgment. It's almost like he's pulling that out and saying, now let's, let me, church, there is grace and peace in studying what's happening here. So 17, 18, and 19 really is just a, we're taking a closer look at the final judgment upon a world that refuses Christ. And so chapter 17, where we were last week, we titled that message, Babylon Unmasked. Because so much of what chapter 17 is, is showing us that one of uh, Satan's tools to tempt us away from Christ is, chapter 17 calls her a mystery woman. And then he identifies the mystery woman two ways, two descriptions, simultaneous. One is, she's a great prostitute. And then the second description we get in chapter 17 is, she is Babylon the Great. All talking about the same, just using two different descriptions to help us to understand Babylon. And that this is what this woman, this great prostitute, this Babylonian city, is what Satan uses to lure us away from Christ. And the description of a prostitute is helpful because we know what that is. And in chapter 17, John lays out for us that Babylon is nothing more. Yet she's beautiful, she's dazzling, but her face is painted on, John says. She's wearing dazzling clothes, but her beauty is not real. It's a facade. What Satan uses to trick us, to lure us away from Christ to other things, is nothing more than fake. And in chapter 5, he even says, God allowed me behind the scenes on this prostitute. And do you remember what chapter 17, verse 5 said? Chapter 17, I'm sorry, not verse 5. Verse 3, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on the, there he sees the prostitute. But boy, she portrays to us, man, you come to me, it'll be all satisfying. You come and you drink with me. You come, you lie with me. You come and you live with me. And it will be soul satisfying. But John says in the spirit, he took me. She lives in a wilderness, a desert land, a wasteland. What she's pulling us to is death. It's all a facade. And he also identifies her as Babylon the Great. And that's an interesting description because as John writes this in approximately A.D. 95, Babylon has been in rubble for 500 years. There is no Babylon. There's no geographic place on the map in John's day. You can go and say, this is what he's talking about. So what is Babylon? We said it's symbolic of everything Babylon stood for in its day. Wickedness, oppression, idolatry, godlessness. Babylon represents the total culture of a, a world apart from God. 
a world that's entrenched in opposition to Christ. And the great strategy of the great prostitute of, Bar, of, of Babylon is worldliness. That spirit of seduction that causes us to think less of God. And when that happens, we immediately think higher of ourselves. And when that happens, we think less of sin. And the smaller the sin, or we perceive sin to be in our own soul, the less we need Christ. That's what worldliness does. It pulls us in to think lesser thoughts of God, higher thoughts of ourselves, lesser thoughts of our sin. And if I've got a small sin, I don't need a big Christ. I can tack him onto my life and just kind of let him punch my ticket to heaven. I don't have to surrender to this one. I don't have to identify with this one. And as we transition into chapter 18, I would just commend to you an old work by St. Augustine. His classic work, The City of Man, is exactly what John is depicting here for us. Augustine's book, The City of Man, depicts the whole of human history as a battle between two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. And that's the contrast we're seeing here in Revelation. Right now, the focus is on Babylon, and as we transition into chapters 19, 20, 21, and so forth, the focus is on the new Jerusalem. And the real question as we're looking at Babylon is to which city do I belong? Where's my citizenship? Am I living in Babylon with worldliness? Am I being turned away from Christ? And I can be in church on a Sunday morning and be turned away from Christ. Remember, we said Babylon is not something out there. Babylon is very much in this room right now. Babylon is in our homes. It's in our families. It's in our marriages. Babylon is in our hearts right now. And this is the grace and peace of the book of Revelation. Because last week was Babylon unmasked. This week in chapter 18, the title of the message is Babylon Undone. The grace and peace is exposing Babylon in the life of a soul before chapter 18. Again, a depiction of the sixth and seventh bold judgment, final judgment, exposing Babylon before it's too late. There are, as we look at Revelation 18, at least four solemn truths that I think the Lord would have us consider together this morning under the, the title of Babylon Undone. And the first is this, the great certainty of Babylon's undoing. The great certainty. Look at verses 1 and 2. John says, after this, again, after what? The identity of Babylon. After unmasking who she is. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a loud voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Let's stop right there. There's a couple things I want us to notice just right here in this announcement of this angel. First, notice the tense. Notice the tense of the message. It's written in the past tense as though it's already taken place. But what's he talking about? Again, the sixth and seventh bold judgment. Again, we're not interpreting things chronologically, but that is describing the final judgment. And by God's grace, we're not there yet. That's not to say it won't come any moment, or that it can't come any moment. But as we sit here today, as it was in John's day, that is a future event. Because we're still alive. We're still here. We're not with the king yet. Yet John writes about this in the past tense. Seems kind of strange, doesn't it? Except for the fact throughout the Bible, this is kind of a literary device of the biblical writers. When something in the future is so certain to take place, it is an absolute certainty, it is going to happen, the biblical writers will often write in the past tense as though it's already occurred. It's so sure, we can write about it as though it's already occurred. And the classic example of this is what we see in Romans chapter 8 where Paul's writing about that ordo salutis, the order of salvation in Romans chapter 8, where there he writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, here it is, he also glorified. Past tense. He also glorified. I'm not there yet. I wouldn't begrudge being there now. 
but I'm not there. But here he talks about a future event that is so certain that those that he has called and those that he's predestined and those that he's foreknown and those that he's justified, it is so certain. He who began a good work will see it through to completion through Jesus Christ that he can speak of our future glorification in the past tense as though it's already occurred. And that's exactly what John is doing here when talking about the undoing of Babylon, when talking about the demise and the destruction of Babylon. It's as if in the mind of God and the purpose of God, it is already done. So he writes, fallen, fallen, past tense, is Babylon the great, though the spiritual realities of that have not occurred. Babylon is still here in this room, in the world, in our hearts. All that Babylon symbolizes in chapter 17 is still a present-day reality, but it is certain to occur. And that's the beauty of the past tense there. A second thing here I want you to notice is the double fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. You know, the way we have our Bibles today is there was an original manuscript written by John. We don't have those original manuscripts, but they, they were there. And those things were destroyed. There was only one original. So to get in the hands of, of various people, you had to sit down and scribes had to copy it. So when we come upon something that's repeated twice, fallen, fallen, don't mistake and think, well, a scribe just must have lost his place and he made the mistake of writing it twice. No. The repetition here, fallen, fallen, very much has a purpose. It shows certainty. We live in a day today, we highlight, we italicize, we underline, we, to draw attention. Well, there was no such thing as italics. There was no such thing as highlighter. And so repetition was one of the ways that a biblical writer, uh, the, the, the biblical writer here, and then John, under the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit, would emphasize the importance of what's to come by repeating, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. He's drawing our attention to the certainty of this event. And notice as he continues going on, not just the past tense and the double repetition there of fallen, notice what he says next. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of her passion, of her sexual immorality. And again, go back to chapter 17. Sexual immorality is a constant theme, but here when it comes to Babylon, it's talking about idolatry. And, and only think back to um, when, when God in the Old Testament is, is accusing his people of their idolatry. They've turned, he calls them what? Sexually immoral. They're adulterous people spiritually. They have gone after another lover. And that's what Babylon is here. And I'm not saying that sexual immorality as we understand it today in the 21st century isn't a piece of this, but the broad idea here of what Babylon is doing is idolatry. He's, she's luring us away to another false god, a false idol, luring us, our, our affections toward another. So again, keep in mind, he's talking about idolatry here. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. They've fallen prey to those advances to turn to another lover, another God other than the one true God. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Man, what a description. Babylon the great. That's why it's called the great. There was something dazzling about Babylon, geographically, the city, and all that it symbolizes. That was such a vain, such a proud, busy, lustful, worldly place. Not unlike in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, right? The, uh, the city of, oh my goodness, what the city? Um, Vanity Fair, not unlike Vanity Fair in Pilgrim's Progress. All right, just dazzling all around. But what did we just read here in verses 2 and 3? It will re be reduced to a heap of stones, become a desolate wasteland, inhabited only by demons and vultures and all of the glory that came to, to be known in Babylon. And again, symbolic of worldliness and the, all that the world is luring us to everything that attracts us it's glorious fleeting in fact how many times in chapter 18 as we were reading 
the merchants and the ship, they were, alas, alas, Babylon was so glorious. And now in but an hour, it's destroyed, it's gone. That's the idea here. All the makeup and jewelry and the dazzling clothes that she used to turn hearts to a, another God away from Christ, now is exposed. She's left in a heap of rubble left destitute, uh, destitute, a hollow shell of her former self. And we can certainly apply this throughout church history to our own day. We're, we're proud of the day that we live in today. I don't mean we're proud of the world that we're living in, but we live in a very sophisticated, civilized, modern, Western world. Every generation thinks that, man, we've evolved and now we're and we're at the pinnacle of human ingenuity. We're at the pinnacle of human intellect. There's never been a generation like ours, and every generation has thought that. We can go all the way back to the Roman Empire. In its day, it was the pinnacle. Where's the Roman Empire today? We can go back and we can talk about the Egyptian Empire. Where's that today? The Grecian Empire, where's it today? And make no mistake about it, if we're talking about the Western world today, it will end up just as described here. Babylon is fallen, destitute, a wasteland. That's what the Roman Empire is. That's what the Egyptian, the Grecian Empire, and the same will be true of our day today. All who are entangled in the idolatrous ways of Babylon will meet the same final end of destruction, will suffer her fate. And this is the grace and peace of the passage. Repent while there's still time. Even as the seven bold judgments have already been communicated to us, to which once they pour, there is no last second chance. But even here, the grace and peace of God to say, listen, I've already announced these bold judgments are coming, but in grace and peace, let's pull back one more time and let me expose the worldliness of Babylon. Let me show you the work of the unholy trinity of pulling even good churchgoers like you. Who's he writing this letter to? The seven churches who are in their churches on. Let me show you how even though you attend church every Sunday morning and I acknowledge there's good things going on, your heart may be distant, may have drifted away from Christ and you will meet the same destruction as Babylon will, lest you repent. From the get-go in here, we've been reminded that repentance is person-oriented. The temptation of Babylon, of Satan, and his allies is to pull us away from a king. When we talk about repentance, we're talking about returning to a king, to his sovereign rule, his authority, his preeminence, his place, his beauty, his majesty, his all in all. Not just some words that we sputter out of our mouths that we kind of hope kind of like a, a blanket covers our sins, but we are returning to our commander-in-chief. We are returning to our Lord. We are returning to our kind and merciful king. It's person-oriented. The warning here of Revelation 18 to you and I as the church is why centuries ago Samuel Rutherford wrote these words, build your nest in no tree here on earth, for God has sold the entire force to death. This is why in the Old Testament, people are called fools, fools who trade in life with God for the pleasures and the fulfillments of this world. So that's the first thing we see here in this passage. We see the undoing, the certain undoing of Babylon, but there's a second thing here, and it's piggybacking off of where we're already at. There's a great warning to you and I. A great warning. In light of the certainty of Babylon's undoing, verse 4, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Come out of her, my people. Keep in mind, who's he he's talking about Babylon. Babylon is not a geographical place. It's in rubble. It's symbolic of a culture. 
It's symbolic of, a, 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 of the world that lives in... Come out of this world that has wooed you and lured you and your affections to another lover. Come out of that. Return to your king. Return to Christ. Return to, to the Lord. It's a call not for physical separation, but for heart separation. And this is so important. Come out of her, my people, is a call for spiritual separation. And why is that significant? That was the mistake of the, just the Roman Catholic Church. Come out of her. So what did the Roman Catholic, they built monasteries and nunneries. Where this is where we're going to go and be holy. We're going to build, and this is where the monks and the nuns, and we're going to be religious, and we're going to be holy, and we're going to, we're going to be very disciplined, and we're going to read. And hey, listen, you can go back and read some of that stuff. They were some of the most, they will put us to shame today, but that does not mean they're Christian. They were religious. The problem is, they built a building over here, out of the world. Problem was, what we saw in Babylon last week, Babylon's not something out there. Babylon is something here. And so you can try to separate yourself physically, but wherever you go, you're filling that place with Babylon. That was the mistake of the Roman Catholic Church there. And that's why Jesus, when he prayed, didn't pray that the Father would take Christians out of the world, but that he would take the world out of Christians. Take Babylon out of Christians. Take worldliness out of Christians. And Jesus himself spoke, remember Lot's wife. Go back to Genesis. What was, what was going on with Lot's wife? Brought out of Sodom and Gomorrah. She stood by her husband. She separated from Babylon. Again, Sodom and Gomorrah is just another picture of Babylon there. And all the worldliness, keeping God at distance. She stood by her man outside of Babylon. But what? Her heart was still there. How do we know? She looked back. She turned back. Her heart never separated. She was physically outside the walls of Sodom and Gomorrah, but her heart was still there. Her religion was just a cloak that she wore to satisfy her husband, to satisfy her religious relatives. But in her heart, she was still a Babylonian. And so she became a pillar of salt. Friends, this is a massive warning to the seven churches and therefore to you and I this morning. We cannot afford to sit here and let this fall on deaf ears and say, well, you're talking about somebody else. You're not talking about me. We read this morning in Psalm 141 in our, our prayer meeting this morning about David, who was surrounded by his enemies. And yes, he's praying for deliverance from his enemies, but what did David pray? He prayed, my greater enemy is, in, is me. I'm not responding. Lord, there's Babylon in my heart that I'm not responding in a way that's pleasing to my king. As my enemies, I'm getting very self-centered, very selfish. And so, Lord, deliver me from myself. And that's the message of the grace and peace of Revelation 18 to the church. There's no safety in being in this room while the world is out there. Babylon is out there. Babylon is here in every one of us. And this morning, our king in grace and peace is giving us another opportunity for it to be exposed and repented of. I made mention last week, I grew up in a church, and it was not unique to that church. It was kind of the product of 60s, 70s, and 80s religion, Christian religion, where separation from the world was thought of in terms of physicality. Worldliness was depicted as a physical, or, or battling worldliness was depicted as a physical separation from smoking, drinking, casinos, going to certain movies, don't wear certain clothes. Uh, when you go to church, wear certain clothes. If you don't meet those standards, you're worldly. And in that vein... Worldliness can be overcome in the flesh. I just make sure I don't go where I'm not supposed to go, and I go where I'm supposed to go, and I don't wear what I'm supposed to, you know, all those things. And it has produced a Christianity today that's become very legalistic and pharisaical. 
the message of Revelation, there's only one way to overcome worldliness, and it is not through some Herculean effort on your and my part and some system of rules for this week. Here's how I'm going to guard my heart against uh, worldliness. Not to say that there's not some wisdom that should be applied there, but that's not fundamentally how we battle worldliness. The only way to come out of worldliness as we're commanded to do here in, chapter, in verse 4 is not through legalism or through Herculean efforts. It's only through Christ. And isn't this what Thomas Chalmers said last week? We talked about his sermon, and if you've not done so, you can find it on our Facebook page. Go and read the sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Chalmers there said the only way to overcome worldliness is not through even, and he gives a whole list of things where it says you can't be done through intellect. It can't be gone through greater knowledge. It's not evangelism. It's not this, that, or the other. Not that any of those things are wrong, but worldliness is not overcome by those things. There's only one thing. You've got to overcome the affection you have with the world with a new and greater affection. Go back to the first place you fell in love with Christ, and that was at the cross, the love of God for you. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And where do we see that? At the cross. The call here for you and I to come out of Babylon is a call for us to run to the crucified Christ. So what's the takeaway? When you feel the great prostitute seducing you, and we all feel it. Now, it could be this morning. Maybe you're numb to it. Maybe your heart has become so hardened, and maybe that needs to be the prayer this morning. Maybe that should be the prayer. Lord, soften my heart because I have... I can, it's undeniable. I've been seduced by the world and I'm treasuring other things more than Christ. I'm just not feeling it. Well, then pray to God for grace in that matter. And when you feel the lure, the seduction of the great prostitute seducing you, when you feel the world creeping in on you to treasure something greater to Christ in that moment, pray for grace to flee to your king, to flee to Calvary, to gaze upon Christ. And to be so captivated and mesmerized and overcome by the beauty and the majesty and the love and the mercy and grace of your king who's on that cross for you to overcome this worldliness, to defeat Babylon for you. But nothing can compare. As you stand at the cross looking, if he gave all this for me, how can I possibly go to bed with another lover? And again, I cannot encourage you enough. My soul has benefited from it for a number of years. I don't always live it perfectly. But Thomas Chalmers, the expulsive power of a new affection, a powerful means of grace to help us to overcome and to come out of Babylon. The passage tells us very quickly there's about a final retribution. This is the third thing, a final retribution. Chapter 18, verse 5. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid others. Again, he's talking about Babylon here, the great prostitute. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a light measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, notice the selfishness here, worldliness, we defined it as low view of God, high view of self, low view of sin, no need of a savior. Here's what she says, I sit as a queen. I'm no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Worldliness leads us to think less of God, less of Christ, more about ourselves. And here she is saying, I'm queen, I'm captain. I'm in charge of my life. I do what I please. I'm in charge of my fate. promise here in these verses we just read. <laughs> she will be destroyed. Everything will be cut off. And in chapter 18, 
it goes through a series of cycles. Time's not going to allow us to spend the time on it. I would have liked, but it goes through a, a series of cycles of merchants and uh, seafarers and who are affected. These merchants are those who sold everything to live in the city of Babylon, to live worldliness. And now we heard the cry repetitiously, alas, alas, Babylon is gone. Babylon is destitute. Everything we gave our lives to, it has been proven to be nothing. Asaph was the worship leader in Israel. And in Psalm chapter 73, he's just real honest as he looks out at the world and he looks at his own life. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. What's he saying there? Asaph, this worship leader of Israel. So lest we think that, hey, we wouldn't think these thoughts. Yes, we do. Asaph is looking out of the world around, and everything seems to be going smoothly for them in the world. No problems in the world. They're prospering. They seem to live fulfilled lives. There's, there, there's, there's stupid grins on their faces day and night. And Asaph is just real honest. He says, I've kept my heart clean for you, God. I've sought your face. I'm the worship leader of Israel. I've kept my heart pure and innocent. And yet my life is characterized by nothing but grief and stricken with rebuke and all kinds of mourning. Anybody else been there? And this is how Psalm 73 verse 17 picks up. That was my mindset. I've done all this and I'm suffering. Meanwhile, the world just seems to be doing whatever they want to, and they're, they're prospering. Until, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. That's what Psalm, excuse me, Revelation 18 is doing for us here this morning. Revelation, we've said all along, is the most practical book in all of the Bible. What a tragedy for the better part of 50, 60, 70 years. It's been made out to be just some crazy future of no practical benefit to the church of Jesus Christ, no grace and peace today. It is about cultivating a worldview of our king on his throne and, and how our king is ruling and reigning even over all the difficulties in, of, that the church faces in between his ascension and his return. And Revelation has been, chapter 18 here is teaching us, yeah, you may look out and Babylon looks like it's the place to be. Discern its end in chapter 18 here. The day of retribution is coming. A life of worldliness and rebellion to God and rebellion to his beautiful king. It will come. And it's so sure to come, he can talk about it in the past tense as though it's already occurred, and he's going to use the double fallen, fallen as Babylon. Notice there's things in here like Babylon will be punished twice. He's just talking about the magnitude here. Not necessarily talking about a literal two punishments as much as he is. This world thought it got away. It mocked God. It lived in rebellion of Christ. It lured people away from Christ. It will pay the price. The balance of justice will be set in motion. Some may ask, and maybe you this morning, so is this the part where you're talking about he's going to send people to hell? Yeah. Yeah, that's what this is. That's what the final judgment is all about. That's what these bold judgments are all bringing to, sending his enemies to hell forever. And that's something a lot of people today have a problem with. They don't understand. How could a God that, man, I, I think of God as being this loving God and patient and merciful and kind and this grandfather upstairs who loves everybody, how can you say he's going to send somebody? Well, you don't understand God then. And you certainly don't understand sin against the reality of who God is. Maybe portray it this way. Any bird owners in the house? Like you have a pet bird at home? I had to pick an animal here that I wouldn't offend anybody. Let's, let's say you have a pet bird at home. And somebody comes into your home and kills your bird. All right, they come in, they kill that bird. 
You're going to be upset, right? That's your pet. And you may go so far as to confront the person and ask them to make restitution, right? Give me another bird. You might even, in the day that we live in today, try to bring charges against that person. But my point is, you're not going to sentence that person to death row for killing your bird, are you? But if that same person comes and puts a knife in your child or in your spouse or in you, that person will be in a court of law. And the balances of, of justice will measure out. And that person will spend the rest of their life in prison or on death row. Why? Because you're more important than a bird. What's the difference? You're created in the image of God. That's a bird. Likewise, when you sin against the God of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, who has never been from the moment of your conception anything but merciful and gracious and kind to you, who has never ever done you any ill, and oh, by the way, the God who has been this kind and merciful is infinite. And that means he has an infinite hatred of sin. When you sin against that one, you can never make restitution for it. Why? He's infinite. Only someone who is infinite could come and satisfy the infinite wrath of God. Does that make sense? Only someone infinite, only someone who is infinite and would be willing to take on your human nature so as to bear the punishment for sin. And that's why, that's why when Babylon is in our hearts, you must flee to Christ. It will not do to flee to legalism. It will not do to flee to religion. It will not do to flee to better church attendance or singing better or this, that, or the other. You must flee to a person. You must flee to one who is both infinite and simultaneously man. One who can satisfy God's wrath, but at the same time can bear the infinite eternal weight of God's wrath upon himself so that you, who are finite, could ever possibly be forgiven. And hell, eternity in hell, for Babylon will be God balancing the scales. And that's the grace and peace here. This day is coming for Babylon. And if you sow in Babylon, you sow a life in worldliness, you will reap this eternal judgment. That's what the author of Proverbs, only a fool, only a fool is going to listen to Babylon undone and not deal with Babylon in their heart. Because what is pictured here will happen to everyone who lives there. Flee to Christ. That's repentance. Person-oriented. Flee to the God-man. The only one to whom those sins can be forgiven. And we live forever. And then we'll close with this very quickly. There's a disillusionment in this passage. We're not going to take the time to read it. But the merchants, the seafarers, all those people who invested in Babylon, oh, they thought, Babylon's going to satisfy me. Babylon's going to be everything to me. I'm going to be fulfilled. The message of Revelation 18 is nothing in this life is as it appears to be. We may look at Babylon. We may look at the world. We may be jealous. We may be envious. We may at times be tempted. You know what? I, I need it. I want it. I'm going to do what I want to do. But it's all disillusionment. All the categories of all kinds of people, kings and merchants and travelers, the importers and exporters. You remember all the, 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 the merchandise that they sold, the cinnamon, the myrrh, all that list of things right there? What, what's the message? It all collapsed. It's all, it, it, all, it, all is, it collapsed. In, in 1929, what has often been called the, the worst day in American history, up until probably recent days. Black Friday. 
the Great Depression, the most devastating stock market crash in the history of our country, leading to the Great Depression. And on that day, people suddenly who had invested everything in this world, in that moment immediately, were bankrupt. They were undone. Unexpectedly, families were ruined. And you can go back and you can read books on that day, the bloodshed in our country from businessmen committing suicide because everything they had built their life upon in this world collapsed. They weren't prepared for it. And the message of Revelation 18 to the church, are we prepared for the certain collapse that is soon to come? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Not some geographic place. That's already happened. A life, a soul that has pursued other lovers other than Christ, drifted away from Christ, pursued others. Are you prepared? When like in the days of Noah, the Son of Man shall come, just as it was in the days of Noah. And every individual on the earth, let us in the boat, let us in the boat. It's too late. What is it you're living for this morning? It may not be something that's inherently bad. It may be your family, your children, your grandchildren, your pets. Your, it may be perfectly legitimate things in and of themselves. The message of Revelation 18 is, and listen to this clearly. Oh, we've tried to portray this in every message, and maybe it hits, sometimes it misses. Here it is. Whatever you're living for, if it's not Jesus Christ, you will be destroyed with Babylon. Jesus will not accept being one among many lovers. You're not going to accept that in your marriage, are you? If your spouse is committed to you and another, why do we think Jesus is going to allow anything else? This world and everything that lives for this world that's not Christ will be destroyed. That's the message of Revelation 18 of Babylon undone. So for you and I, lay down your treasures. Not on earth where moth and rust destroy. Invest your lives in your king, in Christ. Turn to him, flee to him. Verse 20 says, rejoice over her the destruction of Babylon. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. What does it mean? Why do we rejoice in Babylon's destruction? Because that's a means to an end. We're going to get into chapter 19, 20, 21, and 22 in a moment, in a few weeks. But the idea here is Babylon falls because your king is victorious. Your king wins. Christ conquers every one of his enemies. And his people win. Flee your king now while there's time. Do you still thirst for the world this morning? Are you hungering for something in the world? The message of Revelation 18. Babylon will be undone in a can be sooner than you think. If there's Babylon in your heart, worldliness, you've pursued something other than Christ, return to him.